Hey, good morning, Westside. <clears throat> We're going to be reading from James 3, 3 through 12. My name is Alan. I'm going to be reading for you, so if you just, I'll give you a few minutes to turn to it. If you're in, reading the Pew Bible, it's on page 1114. I'll give you a minute. Once you get there, say, being human. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord our Father and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings, my brothers. These things, should not, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to those of you in the room and those watching online. I'm really excited to stand before you today and... It's been an interesting last few weeks of the continual aroma that I will say that worship has kind of laid the soil down for us of just a heart of thankfulness and gladness this year. Um, I don't know what you're expecting God to do in your life for 2024, but uh, I'm just expecting the God that's just, he's a good God, and so I expect good things. And it doesn't mean everything's going to go perfect, but I do know that God will never change. And that's something we can hold on to as a church. Amen. If we would, just join me in a quick word of prayer. Uh, guys, I'm like in a moment of my life today of just thinking of all the things the Lord has done. Like, I know I'm only, I know I'm, some of you look like I'm, you know, I'm probably 18 years old, but the Lord's done so much just in the few years that I've lived so far, and I'm just overwhelmed with thankfulness of like, He's been so good to me, to my family. And so I just, I just want to say thank you to the Lord. So, so I just want you in your minds as we start service, just to think of the things that you've seen God do in your life. And just to think of those moments where you had little hope and He showed up. When you thought He wasn't going to do it, and He did so much immeasurably more than you even asked for. So let's pray with that heart and posture. Lord Jesus, you've been so good. You've been good to personally someone who doesn't feel like they deserve it. Lord, you've been good to so many of us in this room. Your word is good. Your love is good. Your faithfulness is good. Lord, let us not forget the miracles you've done in our lives. Let us not become calloused to the work you've done to the things that you've, the walls you've broken down, for the obstacles you've helped me overcome. 
Lord, let that be our posture as we turn to your word, your holy word, your eternal word. That when we open it, it's not just something we do out of routine. But Lord, we, we commune with you. We thank you for even making a moment like this possible. We honor you. We're here to hear from you. Lord, our, my, my speech does nothing without the power of the Spirit. This preaching would be worthless if you aren't involved and you're good and you have something good for someone in this room today. Let your word be proclaimed in the powerful and professing name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I figured since it's single digits outside that I would uh, hopefully release some good feelings by showing you this wonderful picture. Uh, this is Bush Stadium. And so hopefully some of you just feel better now. You're like, I can already think of spring, baby. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I grew up loving baseball. Um, I, I lived in St. Peter's, which is really close to St. Louis, and got to watch, you know, people like Mark McGuire hit home runs and you know, Matt Morris and J.D. Drew, and anyway, a bunch of Cardinals from the 90s, and I really loved it. Of course, they didn't play in the stadium when I was a kid. I got to go to the other one, but I say this just because I love baseball, and it's, a, you know, you get to know me a little bit, but I want to share with you a story that is interesting in the light of our series. We've been in a series that we just started called Being Human, and our conviction has been pretty straightforward, and it's this. Who you're becoming is way more important than what you're doing. What you, who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. And last week we talked about Guinness World Records and all the crazy records that's out there. But the, regardless of what they're doing, they're becoming a world record holder. And I thought to myself, you know, as humans, we're kind of programmed to want to try to accomplish things. But what's interesting is we live in a world today, and I say world, I say in a culture where we need to get better and faster. You can do better. You can always get faster. You can always get smarter. You can always get prettier. You can always get whatever. And the reality is I think so many times we're tempted to fall into that lie and it's exhausting if I could speak for the majority. It's exhausting to always have an expectation of you could have just done a little bit better. And so this series is an idea of being human means to slow down, to take the back road. You never go, you never shine if you don't go, right? Some of you will get that reference. But the idea is we have to slow down as humans. So often we want to get things done, right? We have lists and we have boards and we have all these things that we want to see ourselves accomplish. And I think when we look at the Word, when we look at what God is teaching us, at least in this season, it's to slow down, to be human. And guess what about being human means that we have to look at our lives. And so the last few weeks we've looked at kind of the stop hurrying, the hurry sickness that we talked about, right? The, the, the illness that many of us suffer with of you're already thinking about what you have to do after this and where you're gonna, what you're going to cook for lunch. Then you're thinking about you got to do the dishes after you cook the lunch and are you going to get time for a nap, right? That's you. And so, so today I thought of just starting with a, uh, a kind of an uh, illustration of a baseball player by the name of Mike Musina. And Mike is a New York Yankee um, pitcher, and this is him pitching. And what's interesting, in September 2nd, 2001, Mike had pitched eight full innings, 
and, was, had a, and he had two outs in the ninth inning. So he had pitched what they would be called in baseball a perfect game. Now, let me explain, because some of you are like, can you explain what a perfect game is? It's when a pitcher has no hits, gives up no hits, okay, and also no runs, obviously, and also doesn't hit a player, okay? So if the pitcher hits a player and they take first base, they would argue that breaks a perfect game. Mike had been doing this all the way for 114 pitches, and this was at Fenway Park. So New York was playing the Boston Red Sox. And if you know anything about that rivalry between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, just the great Bambino is all I'm going to say for that. It's probably, I would argue, one of the biggest sports rivalries. I don't even want to say baseball, but probably sports rivalries, even bigger than the St. Louis Cardinals and Chicago Cubs. So we'll let some of you Cubs fans slide in here today. But New York and Boston, this was a game that they wanted to win. It's, it's, it doesn't even matter if it's a practice, right, when you have a rivalry. Anyway, Mike struck out 13 batters, and he was on his way to shutting down 26 straight Boston hitters. But a man by the name of Carl Everett, who was actually a pitch hitter, came up to bat, and in two outs... In other words, one out away from a perfect game. Carl lines a single to the left field to break up perfection. The next batter up was Trot Nixon, and he grounded out to end the game. But friends, what I say about this is interesting is Michael was one out away from a perfect game. One hit away from a perfect game game. And I have this in your listening guide, and it's going to transition, but today's going to be all about words. Going to be all about words. And so the application to Mike's story is it only takes one. It only takes one out or one base hit to ruin a perfect game. And what's interesting about words is it only takes one word for you and me to instantly feel something. It only takes one word. And many of us in this room have either spoken words or the truth of a lot of us in this room is we've had words spoken to us that aren't true. The power of just one word speaks volume. And so my big idea today, and I think goes into what we're going to talk about for the remainder of our time, is this. True wealth, because as humans we always want to accumulate wealth, true wealth is knowing the worth of your words. One more time. True wealth is knowing the worth of your words. See, our words carry worth. I used to have a a joke when I was training in corporate world, and it was words matter. And I had it with T's instead of, like, you know what I mean? Words matter uh, because they're heavy. Words can matter. Our true worth comes from our words, not our works. I think oftentimes we think in a world, again, of being human, that your true worth is what you can do with your hands, who you are, what your indeed profile say about you. But the reality is our words say a lot more about us and the worth that we put into them. Words have the power to curse and create. Words have the power to harm or bring harmony. And I thought to myself, you know, as we were talking about a second ago about just being the Lord being good to us. When our son was born premature, I remember the doctors saying and the nurses, they said, 
hey, don't, just because he's in an incubator, don't, don't think you can't talk to him. And what's interesting about this thing was it was, man, it was crazy to watch of like his oxygen sets would be better when we would just talk to him. Megan would sing over his incubator. In my mind, I'm like, is this working? I don't know. But the beautiful part about it is that indeed it was. Words were doing something to him as he was growing. One, obviously they say this is because they're used, the babies in their mother's womb are used to hearing voices outside of the womb. And so talk as if you're still in the womb. So me and Megan would talk and we would have conversations in the NICU room and it was just this, who are we talking to, right? Like, why are we talking so loud? We wanted Judah to hear, right? But words have power. But what's interesting about words is the Bible has a lot to say about words. I don't know if you know this. Not obviously is it 774,000 words, in case you want to know how many words are in the Bible. But the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue, about the tongue. And so what I want to do is just read to you very simply six different Proverbs that I think will help us illustrate what our goal is today to talk about words. First one is this, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Just some light reading for us today. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 12.6, The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. Proverbs 15.4, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 15.28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Two more. Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. And then lastly, Proverbs 21.23, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. I love what Mark Twain says. He says, the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between lightning bug and lightning. Again, it's beautiful kind of poetry in a sense. Here's some other things. Even Mother Teresa said this, words which do not give the light of Christ increase the darkness. And Robert Frost, he's an American poet. He says, poetry is when an emotion has found its thought and the thought has found its words. And I have a poem. I mean, words are interesting. I don't, know, I don't know what you grew up reading, you know, Hallmark cards, things like that, right? My mom always gave a Hallmark card for every single occasion, even on Easter and all that other stuff. You're like, well, I got a card today. But, but words have a, a way of just speaking to us. And, and so I want to read you a poem called The Power of Words. And uh, this, is, this is the poem. It's not terribly long. Just, just kind of tune in with me here. It's titled The Power of Words. Words can make one happy. Words can bend one's mind. Words can make one grumpy. And words can make one kind. Words can illuminate a man. Words can make one weep. Words can hurt so much that a man cannot even sleep. Words can hide the truth. Words can strike the heart. Words can provoke the youth to make a revolution start. 
Words can give one freedom. Words can push one to heights. Only words have such powers to separate wrongs from rights. Words are more than missiles that can make one just die. But words, if hit, cause much damage that makes one forget to try. Words before being spoken are under our total control. But after we speak the words, we fall under their control. Again, just a beautiful way of speaking about how poems get us to think about the power of words. And I don't know what you have been in your life and what you've gone through, but there's nothing like a perfectly timed conversation with somebody you love. Whether it be a grandparent, whether it be your spouse, or what I'm getting to be uh, the fruit of now as my son's getting older is just my son looking over and saying, love you. There's nothing, nothing better. It's like I didn't even provoke that, right? Usually you got to provoke them. Like, I love you, buddy. And that's the idea of there's a perfectly timed word. And so what I want to do today is just show us three ways that words work. Three ways that words work. And uh, the first one is this. Words are tools. Words are tools. And I'm just going to reread James 3.3. I'm just going to give you an idea here of where this point comes from. Words are tools. So the idea is, what are my words building? Verse 3, James chapter 3. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guarded or guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a fire. Your words are tools. So what are your words building? I think James, if, if you know anything about this author, it's actually believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. So you can imagine the irony of writing a letter, being the brother of Jesus, and one thing that he talks about is how to gain wisdom and the power of the tongue. And what's interesting is you and me, we know this lesson. Your tongue has power. Your tongue is a tool. The old saying, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never. Hmm, what, the, what is the biggest lie you've ever heard, right? And yet we tell that to our kids. I say that because what are your words building? See, parents in the room, we have to understand something. Every word we speak to our children matters. And here's the opposite side of that the words that we stay silent on also matter. For my students in the room, the words that you say to other peers of yours in school matter. The words you speak to your elders, whether it be family or in society, they matter. And for us, we have to see that words are tools, and we all use them, right? It's really hard to live a day and not use words. And when I say words, by the way, I'm also talking about uh, what you post on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all the others. The words you use are tools. What are your wor words building? And I have three questions for you just to give you kind of some, some uh, agenda of what we're doing. First is this. I'm going to ask you a question. Are my words encouraging? Are my words encouraging? Do people walk away with their heads held high after speaking with you? Because here's the sad reality that I think many of us don't even realize. We do it subconsciously. Your discouragement 
has the power to crush someone's dreams. Simply just being discouraged about them. Well, if it was me, I would be quiet. Your discouragement has the power to crush someone's dreams. See, truth does hurt, but it shouldn't crucify. Truth does hurt, given at the right time, but it doesn't crucify. I think James is even talking about this when he uses words like, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a fire. I remember I had a buddy of mine named Josh. you got to love nicknames you give your buddies growing up. Okay, This young man, he was long blonde hair. We called him Butters. There you go. He's a really good skateboarder. But Butters was in our savannas in Florida, and he was lighting matches. And this is not a made-up story, and one match got away from him. And there was dried savannas underneath him, and you can imagine what happened. And then we tried grabbing pool water and put it out, and you putting chlorine water on whatever. Small caused a huge fire in our backyard. So big, the fire, I mean, it was a huge deal. Our words have to be encouraging. So you can use hard words as long as they're helpful. You can use hard words as long as they're helpful. I was telling you a minute ago about working in corporate America. One thing I always had to do was an audit. I had to audit people's work, which is a lot of fun if you've ever been an auditor. Because it's like, well, listen, I get to sit down with you and tell you all the things you didn't do right. Right? And maybe praise the few people that do things right. But I remember always having a saying in my meetings, and I even say it to our staff here when we do one-on-ones and all this. I say, hey, before we even meet, I want you to know my agenda is for you to leave encouraged, not discouraged. If you leave a meeting with me discouraged, I feel like I didn't do my job. Again, are, are your words encouraging? Because again, your discouragement speaks oftentimes very loud for who you are as a person. I think of Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Are they encouraging? The second thing is this, second question, are my words empowering? Do people leave the conversation feeling like they receive something from you? Do you even give them your attention when you're talking to them? Are your conversations even life-giving? Listen, there's one thing I love doing is talking, right? This obviously, as a preacher, it kind of comes with the territory. But there's one thing I also despise, and that's just in, like random talking, right? We can talk about baseball. We can talk about all these things. But is it truly empowering people? When you meet people at your job, is it empowering? These are all things I think... James is reminding us when it comes to the power of your tongue that your words need to be encouraging. And hey, listen, if they're not encouraging, you probably should stop. They're not empowering. They're probably taking power away from others. Because I know you and me, we'd love to say, well, I've got the best idea ever. I mean, if people would just listen to me more, the world would be a better place, right? That's how sadly many of us even think. The third question is this, are my words energizing? Do people feel heard when they speak to me? Or do they feel like they wasted their time? <laughs> and many of you just thought of somebody in the room, right? You're like, yeah, if I talk to that person, i got to waste 15 minutes and never get that back. Are your words energizing? And what's interesting is, you know, there's a difference between listening and talking and 
waiting to respond. And I know all the, the sayings of, is it truly, are we talking here or are you just giving opinions and not really receiving anything? Is this a conversation or a speech? Because is this a monologue or a dialogue? Because right now it feels like a monologue and you're just talking. So again, are you energizing in your conversations? Because see, I think many of us, we don't even realize that sometimes the words we speak have the power to completely kill any sort of energy in the room. You walk in, and obviously a lot of this has to do with selfless, selfishness. That you want it all to be about you. Well, I'm here now. Everything that I have on my mind, I want to share it. Are you encouraging? Are you empowering and energizing with your words? There's a big way to uh, help with this application. How do others respond to my criticism? How do others respond to my criticism? And then, not only on the opposite spectrum of that, because don't forget, I'm coming for the others too. How do I respond to someone criticizing me? It's so funny. I, uh, I, didn't, I was going to get a bunch of examples, but I just, I just want to just encourage you. It's very interesting. This is existing out there. Obviously, Yelp reviews, Google reviews. Did you know churches have Google reviews? It's very interesting. Have fun after service. Don't do it now. But just look up, and you don't even have to look up churches here if you don't want to, if you want to be fair to every church. You can even look up ours. We're not, we don't have five stars. Fun fact. Isn't that crazy? But, but just look up Google reviews for churches, and you will see that they're usually not very encouraging, not very energizing, and not very empowering. And, and I say that because the reality is we've become so, such in a society that every word that you believe is fact. Every word you say has to be true. Listen, we all can't be true, y'all. And if we are, then I think we're just kind of living a lie. And this is why we have God's word to tell us, listen, we can put bits in the mouths of horses. And we can put rudders on ships. And that dictates their direction. Why don't you think your tongue can also do the same for you? So again, our tongues are powerful. The second thing I have is this. Words have worth. How are we investing our words? And this is where we jump back to the text in verse 6. And James writes, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And I, I don't know how else to tell you. That's a verse just to study it this week and just to see what James is actually saying about the power of the tongue. Some translations even have it a different wording. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Some light reading. That your tongue literally has the power of hell. It's not hyperbole. It's, this is, think in your life. Maybe it's an argument you've had with a loved one. Maybe someone, a, a really good friend that you care about. And at the end of that conversation, it didn't even feel like you were talking to a human. It almost felt like you were talking to the enemy. You felt that you had a person that was opposing you. This is one thing I always tell my wife, and we all, even in marriage counseling, of, listen, when you start acting like you're against each other, you've already lost. Married couples in the room, listen, I get that there's disagreements in marriage and relationships. The moment you begin to say, you're against me and I'm against you, you've already lost. And so again, your tongue has the power to literally set things on fire. 
the, the wording there. Continue back up into verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. I don't know what goes through your mind when you read with the same mouth you praise the Lord's the same mouth that you curse your brother. But I just want us to all think about driving here today and someone either cutting you off, maybe didn't pull up to the light far enough for you, maybe you went to the drive-thru before this and that person wouldn't pull up, now I'm airing out some of my grievances. But many of us, we will literally, on our ways to church, be cursing and yelling at our family. And then when you hit the church parking lot, we're Christians now, right? And your, your car just becomes a sanctuary. I, James is saying that's not, that's not a good thing. That's, that's a dictator of what's happening in your hearts. And I don't know if you know, I mean, I don't know how many words you speak a day. If you have an office job or if you're someone that works in public service, um, the average person has about a 30,000 uh, word vocabulary, and every day they use about 16,000 words. 16,000. And before you get into it, fellas, just here's the numbers because it's not what you think. Women do speak about 16,215 words, while us guys speak 15,669 words. So in other words, when you always say women talk more, well, stats don't really prove that. But again, every day we speak 16,000 words a day. And you guys know me, I love numbers. It's just one of those weird things I do. And I started thinking to myself, okay, if I speak 16,000 words a day on average, how many words is the Lord's Prayer? And then, which is 52 in the English ESV. So if the Lord's Prayer is 52 words, and I only say the Lord's Prayer one time a day, that means that I am using 15,950 words on other things. And I thought to myself, wow, how, how powerful is the word when you realize it? We just speak so freely. Yet it takes, us, it takes everything out of us just to say a prayer that takes 20 seconds. Why is that? Why can we be on our phones for four and a half hours a day? Waste 68 days a year on our phones. We don't even have... The patience to pray. But yet, when someone asks us our opinion, you're like, sit down, get a notebook. <laughs> what, what is this about our nature? Uh, I thought to myself, you know, what worth do you put into your words? Because the question is, do you even think about your words? And so I have three different categories for words, and this is the three. There's three different types of thinkers when it comes to those who use words. The first one is this. Those of you who think before you speak. It's about to be a, a, a kindergarten lesson, and that's okay. Some of us count to three. You think about what you're going to say before. And guess what? When I say think, I also want you to think post. Before you speak or post or share on Facebook or whatever platform. Those of you who think before you speak, count to three. 
Then there's those who think while they speak, and you just count to one because you're just going from one word to the next. And then there's those of you who think after they speak. And ultimately, you just don't count at all. So I don't know where you are about who you are as a thinker, but what James is saying is you need to think about the words you use. I mean, this is only five chapters of the letter of James that we get written to the Jews in Jerusalem. They're dispersed. That's where the diaspora word comes from. They're dispersed Jews. These were Jews that had been persecuted. They were Jewish Christians that were being slandered. They were being cussed at. They were being yelled at and and beat. Ultimately, James ends up being martyred. But the idea is these these hearers who's hearing this want to get even. They want their opinions known. And James is reminding them as, as the wisdom of the New Testament to say, listen, we need to put in every single moment of our thinking into the words we use because our words have power. Our words have power. So again, those three things. I have a saying, and I, this is a saying that I think I'll use for the rest of my entire adult life, even to my son. See, at first, we use our words. But then afterwards, our words will use us. So whatever words you use, just understand, once it leaves your tongue, it's going to use you, whatever it is, good or bad. Good or bad. And the last thing is this, words are windows. Words are windows. And this is where even James says in verse 11, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Our words are windows into our heart. The most probably famous verse that many of us think of in this room is Matthew 15. Whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You see, our words are a window into our heart and mind. The words that you speak say more about the condition of your heart than your opinion of your heart. So when you say a word, all you got to do is sit back and watch. What does it do? What does it, what does it do? My application in this point is, how are you letting your words use you? Because I think we would all be lying to ourselves if we said we always gave every thought to every word we ever spoke. And I think even James reminds us of that, especially as we follow Jesus, where we watch a man who was constantly interrupted in his ministry. If anyone had the authority to get upset of what he had to get done, it would probably be our Lord Jesus. There's a lot I got to get done. Like I got to, you know, get crucified. I got to, you know, got to die for the sins of the world. Big, important stuff. But instead, he's going to have dinner with some tax collectors. He's going to go to the temple and argue with the Pharisees. But he does it with a truth in his voice that we can learn from. Because again, words can, hard words can be used, but are they helpful? And I would argue that that's where Jesus teaches us a lot about how we speak to each other. Listen, sometimes we have to rebuke our brothers that have false theology. If you see apostasy, you're like, that ain't, bro, that ain't, that is way wicked what you're believing. You have to say something. These are your words. I mean, some people love to talk. And I know some of us are reserved, and that's okay, but the reality is we have to see that the words we use ultimately are a window into our heart. Our words reveal who we are, what we think, and what we believe.
And, you know, I thought about this because, I mean, obviously when we're talking about words, right, I think there's another tool out there, and it's when we weaponize our words, when you weaponize your words. And just, just to give you an idea here, newsflash, not every thought that you have needs to be said or posted. Not every thought that you think needs to be said, posted, and shared. We live in a world where this is, I mean, I can let the whole world know what's going on with my life. Give me three seconds and we can put it into Facebook. I mean, we live in a society where that's the reality. Where you can make your feelings known in a second. Yet those feelings are also gone in a second. And so I thought to myself, you know, weaponizing our words. You know, I shared this a few months ago. Because we're really good evangelists. It's the way I said it before. And my conviction is we love sharing gossip more than the gospel. And that's how we weaponize our words the worst, is by gossip. Proverbs 26, 20, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. And James 1, 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's in the Bible. You want to know how your religion becomes worthless? When you let your tongue have recess every day. And you just do whatever you want. And I think we forget this. You know, I, I, I mean, obviously we're in a culture now where it's, speak your truth, man. Speak your truth. Well, thanks, Oprah. I appreciate you that. Because the reality is, when you speak your truth, listen, it shouldn't come at the emotional crucifixion of somebody else. Speak the truth. If we're going to speak about truth, we have to go to the one who calls himself the truth. This is where me and you, we have to... My my heart today is, do we understand how we even weaponize our own words? And it's in gossip. I'm just going to call it out right now. The amount of stuff that we will gossip about is insane. And I know it's like God's church, and I get all of that. Hey, listen, you know the reality is that every single New Testament author talks about gossip or malice or using the tongue in a certain way that's not edifying. There's a reason for that. Because guess what? Gossip is super prevalent in the church. There is nothing worse then I'm praying for you. Did you hear about her? I told her I was praying for her, but yeah. And you just end up gossiping about someone that's asking for prayer. Listen, hey, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to stop. All the gossip that we have going on right now about different things, stop. If it doesn't glorify God, why do we even waste our time with it? We weaponize our words. This is what we do. We don't even realize it. We don't even think it's harmful. Yet it's truly killing us. It's truly killing us. And even, even James' big idea in this is that words can't be tamed by ourselves alone. It's only by God's grace can our words be tamed. And so that's what, that's what I'm praying for, is us for us to, to, to know the wealth of God's word. I'm just going to give you two scriptures. I'm going to share a story with you. Proverbs 4, 20 through 23. This is in the NIV translation. And it says it this way for a proverb. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. 
Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And the second thing of wealth of God's word is in 2 Timothy 3. This is a scripture that I pray you would memorize, that you would continue to, to turn back to of what is God's word and its wealth to us. This is how the word is used. All scripture, Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. If we think that we can do any of this life of being human without his word, you're going to try to do all of it on your own, and you're going to fail every time. And then when you do succeed, it's going to be a masqueraded success because it's fleeting. See, today we can turn to God's infallible word that gives us life. The Proverbs say that above all else, we're supposed to guard our hearts. And the way we guard our hearts is by thinking about the words that we speak to our brothers and sisters. This is, this is the reality of do we even know the worth of it? I don't know if you know this, but our Muslim neighbors who make up a good majority of society, whether it be here or even in other countries, our Muslim neighbors are training their children the whole book of the Quran and to know it by the end of high school. They know it word for word by the end of high school. And I thought to myself, that's even in the original language that they're learning it. Just imagine if all we used here was Greek and when we went to the Old Testament, it was always Hebrew. Are you going to be able to even understand what's going on? For, 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 for them, their word, what they would say is God's word, is worth something to them. But what is it worth to you? If they have the word of, an, of a, a fleeting, man-made idea, what do we have with the one and only God's true word? What's it worth to you? Like, what, is this, what does this really matter for us? If we don't think about the words we use and the heart that we have and the idols that we have in our hearts, what does it mean to us? I want to just close with a, with a story because I really don't think we realize our words can cost us our life. Our words can cost us our life. And I'm going to end with a story. It's a, a story that personally has always slowed me down. It's a story of a man by the name of John Rogers. And I'm going to read it. I've got like a manuscript of the story because it's, it's an interesting story. So travel with me back to England of 1555, which would soon be under the rule of Queen Mary, where we get the term Bloody Mary. A man named John Rogers, born 1505, was educated at Cambridge. He became a Catholic priest and accepted a position in the church when the Protestant Reformation was in full swing. His conscience told him that certain teachings of his established church were wrong, and he resigned. He then moved to Holland, where he ministered to English merchants. In Holland, he became friends with William Tyndale, a reformer who was translating the Bible into English. Tyndale converted Rogers to Protestant views, and also Rogers got married. 
Nine months later, Tyndale went to prison and he would be executed as a heretic. But Tyndale left a precious manuscript in John Rogers' keeping. This was his English translation of the books from Joshua to Chronicles, which had not yet been printed. Rogers was determined to see that William Tyndale's valuable work was not lost. For the next 12 months, he labored to put together a complete Bible. Using Greek and even Latin Vulgate, he created a Bible. Its text was based on Tyndale and Miles Coverdale's work. And its 2,000 notes were borrowed from the writings of dozens of other reformers who were active on the continent. Tyndale had been declared a heretic and his name would go on, not go on the Bible. Rogers could not honestly claim the work as his own, so he used a pseudonym, Thomas Matthews. And the Matthews Bible then became the first officially authorized version of the Bible in the English language. God used this one man to open the minds to the truth in God's word. Rogers then went on to pastor a church in London. When, Queen, or excuse me, when King Edward VI died, Queen Mary took over the throne. Rogers continued to preach the gospel the following Sunday under her rule. Knowing Mary's convictions against the teachings of the gospel, he remained faithful in the pulpit, even when he knew that preaching salvation through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, could cost him his life. And indeed, this was his last sermon. The following week, Rogers was placed under house arrest, then imprisoned for months until January of 1555, when he was condemned to die as a heretic. He wasn't allowed to communicate with his family or wife during his imprisonment. And according to the Fox's Book of Martyrs, Rogers begged a local officer to let him speak a few words to his wife when the death sentence was passed. The officer refused, telling Rogers he was not legally married because he had once been a priest. However, on February 4th, as Rogers walked to the stake, walking the same streets where he once preached, was now singing hymns unto his death. And he even saw his wife at the roadside holding their youngest baby, whom he'd not yet met. And he approached the stake with a calm spirit. And this is the point of why I share this, because your words could very much cost you your life. At the stake, Rogers was offered a pardon if only he would recant his beliefs and return to the Catholic Church. But Rogers refused and said, That which I have preached, I will now seal with my blood. The fire was lit and Rogers washed his hands in the flames as though he did not feel them at all. He lifted his hands in the air and the crowd that was watching applauded. And it all started that day. February 4th, 1555. He was the first of many martyrs in Queen Mary's reign. And 287 others would do the same over the next four years. His proclamation of the gospel cost him his life. The words he declared to be the only truth worth believing was worth dying for. He knew the worth of his words meant life for many. As we close, I just want us to remind ourselves the words we use. True wealth, true wealth comes from knowing the worth of our words. Be very careful how we use our words. Pray with me, Jesus. To hear a story like John Rogers, 
William Tyndale, Miles Coverdale. Lord, oh, what we've made of the Bible. We worry about what translation we're reading, what Bible plan we're on. But Lord, the fact that your word is simply there for us to read, hallelujah. Lord, I pray that we leave today knowing your word is the only true word that we have to live for and to die for. Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room today that knows the words that they've been speaking do not breathe life. I pray we turn to you and we submit that to you. We ask that you forgive us for the words that we speak in hate, the words that we speak in maliciousness, the words we speak in selfishness or jealousy, the seeds we sow of division. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts. And Lord, today I also feel the need to pray for all those in the room who've had words spoken to them that simply aren't true. Some of us in this room have heard words like you're worthless. No one likes you. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're too young. You're too old. Lord, I pray for all the lies that many of us in this room are believing. And I pray that you would turn them into truth that what you call us, you call us your own, you call us children, your sons and daughters. We turn to our Father's voice who reassures us that you love us, that you care for us, that you want to give us a new spirit, a new heart, to put new words in our mouth that build others up, that speak grace into a broken world. Lord, let us, let us leave this place knowing the task that we have when we use our words. It's to glorify you when we sing, when we praise. It's a proclamation of who you are. So Jesus, do a mighty work in us today and forever. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.